This morning in congregation in your Bibles, we would direct your attention to Micah chapter 7. We'll be reading from verses 8 through 20 in your pew Bible. You can find this on page 1076. Uh, We come to the conclusion of our series through this Old Testament prophetic book, Micah. We'll be reading from verses 8 through 20 but then especially focusing upon verses 18 through 20 as our text uh, this morning. So hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. And the day when your walls are to be built, and that day the decree shall go far and wide, And that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it, and for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days of old." As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old." And thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God, a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has often been said that the light shines the brightest in the darkness. Uh, Maybe we could even think of uh, the experiences that we ourselves have. If you take a light, perhaps a flashlight, boys and girls, and if you were, and we're not encouraging you to do this, but if you were to say, shine a flashlight in this building when all the other lights are on. In the middle of the day, your, your flashlight wouldn't really seem to be that bright. But if you were in the midst of a dark place, a place that didn't have any lights, and there you were to shine a flashlight, well, then you would see it illuminate in all of its brilliant colors. And as we survey... Uh, the prophetical oracles of Micah, there have been dark oracles, dark foretellings. 
Micah has been given the solemn responsibility to speak a word in his own contemporary times of the coming judgment of the Lord upon the covenant community. He has been called and commissioned to warn the people of Judah that they would be brought into exile in large part because of their covenantal presumption, because they had a facade of spirituality. But behind that facade, there was just emptiness, a hollow ritualism. And the covenant Lord is displeased with Judah because of that hollowness, that emptiness behind the facade of covenantal presumption. And so the Lord has said to His people, to captivity you must go. The foreign nations will come, and they will rise in their power, and they will be successful in their attempts to bring the people of the covenant into exile. But Micah does not, he cannot stop with that being the final word. And so he comes to this beautiful concluding oracle, and he says, In verse 18, who is a God like you? Now, if you look at the statement that just precedes that rhetorical question, you'll notice that the nations will be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Now, we might be prone to think that now Micah will begin to speak about the wrath of God, the judgment of God the righteousness of God. But Micah says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? And so the prophet Micah has a concluding word for his own time and for our time also, a concluding word uh, that expresses confidence in God. And we want to consider that concluding word this morning. Underneath this theme, the prophet proclaims confidence in God. We'll notice that the prophet proclaims confidence in God, including a confidence, first of all, in the action of God. Secondly, a confidence in the nature of God. And then thirdly, a confidence in the promise of God. So the prophet Micah, even in the midst of the realities of the dark oracles that he has been summoned to give, he still has a note of confidence. And I want to ask you this morning, and ask us this morning, you as individual Christians and us as a Christian congregation, do we have spiritual confidence? There is the reality of darkness. We understand that of spiritual darkness in the world in which we are called to live. We understand that there is no shortage of discouraging news reports, Uh, whether it be the political situations, whether it be the spiritual situations in the church broadly considered, maybe even the situations in our own personal lives. We understand that there is much darkness, but the question still stands. Do we have confidence? And to answer that question positively, to say, yes, we do have confidence, there must be the proper focus. 
The focus cannot be upon ourselves. Notice Micah does not say, but who is like Micah? Micah does not say, but who is like Judah? Who is like the covenant people of Israel? Rather, his focus is completely fixed upon God. Who is like God? And you see that even as we've attempted to structure uh, our subpoints. The confidence is all in God. And what God will do, in who God is, and in what God has promised. And so the goal for this morning's sermon, in complete dependency upon the Spirit of God, is that we would all be refocused not upon ourselves or even our circumstances, but acknowledging the reality of who we are and acknowledging the reality of those things, trials in our lives that we face, that we would be refocused upon God himself. And that we would know, first of all, that our God is a God of action. Uh, there are many things that are assumed in our text. We simply state them. There is the assumption that God exists. You and I believe by faith in the self-revelation of God that God exists. That there is one infinite divine being, a triune God. Yes, we fully understand what Scripture reveals. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, yet one only true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And God exists eternally. And this God who exists is not some passive God, but a God who acts, a God who acts continually through the work of providence. A God who is not like the God of the deist, uninvolved with the day-to-day -day activities of this earth, but a God who is intimately involved by His ever-present power, upholding all things and governing all things, guiding, directing, bringing them to pass. And so contrary to the liberal theologians of the 19th and early 20th century who boldly and arrogantly proclaimed that God is dead, we say, no, God is alive. And He is a God who acts, not only in the work of providence, but especially in the continued accomplishment of redemption. And He is a God who acts especially in the forgiveness of sins. This is our hope. We understand that God is over the falling of the smallest sparrow and the growth of the seemingly insignificant flowers of the field. We understand that His power is in and behind all of that. But we especially understand that our God is a God who forgives sin. Notice the words that Micah piles up, you might say, in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over the transgression, having compassion in verse 19, and subduing our iniquities. So God acts in the forgiveness of our sins. Now this also, of course, assumes the reality of sin. Sin is any action of ours or even any thought, and we would include thought and actions, and even inclinations of our heart that are out of conformity to the holy standards of God Himself. 
but God is a God who forgives. These words are informative and are instructive. God lifts up. God carries away. God passes over the guilt of his people. And if you think, how does God lift up? How does God carry away sin? It's by a transfer, and that's why we chose to read from Isaiah 53 as our text of pardon. You can think also of what's said in 1 John 1 verse 8, and then also into 1 John 2 verse 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself carries the sins of the people of God. So God acts and God lifts and carries the guilt of those who believe in him, and he places it on the substitutionary servant, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ then goes outside the city of Jerusalem and deals with that sin once and for all. Now, this is not some type of universalism. Notice that our text qualifies this pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression, speaking of the remnant of his heritage, the remnant, those who remain exercising faith and repentance. But this action is what is most necessary. Now, this is not to deny the the comprehensive scope of God's activity and action in all realms of human life. But perhaps, and I leave this for your consideration and for you to think these things over, perhaps part of the reason why the church in the western part of the world at times is so characterized by a lack of of confidence is because we've lost sight and the focus upon this is the most necessary work of God to deal with the reality of our sins. And if you listen not with an unnecessarily critical ear, but if you listen with a biblical ear to so much of what passes as preaching, this main point is eclipsed by all sorts of other concerns. But when it comes right down to it, what is mankind's greatest need? Reconciliation with God. And what does there need to be in order for reconciliation with God? The forgiveness of sins. And so Micah says, who is a God like you? Our greatest need is exactly what God does. Now do we understand how Micah, even in the midst of the context, and imagine for Micah what what he's seen through his prophetic eye. Here come mighty armies of foreign invaders who are going to carry the covenant people of God into exile. And yet he can say, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. And he has this confidence in the action of God because he has a confidence in our second point, in the nature of God. God's actions flow out of his own nature. This is true of all of us. We do what we do because we are who we are. So who is our God? 
Uh, this also is a very crucial question. And our spiritual health as individual persons and as a congregation depends upon how well we can answer this question, who is our God? Now, let me first of all say, when we answer that question, we must be bound to the Word of Scripture. We dare not try to answer that question, who is our God, apart from God's own self-revelation, God has every right, God has every prerogative to reveal to Himself, uh, to us, who He is. It's not as if we get to invent God. Now, humanity has been attempting to invent gods forever. And, And we live in a culture that is rampant in this type of idea. That way you can have God be whoever you want it to be, while you can have anything be whatever you want it to be. So you can set out and you can build a God after your own imagination, but just know from the outset that the God that you build, the God that you fabricate in your own imagination or in your own thoughts, is not the real God. The real God is the God who has revealed Himself in His Word. But if we go to the Word of God, especially in our text here, uh, and we understand something of the nature of God, you'll notice that the emphasis is put on God's nature, especially in the fact that He delights in mercy. Uh, Now, a bit of theological clarification. We make distinctions in attributes of God or characteristics of God between what we call the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. Human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God, and so there are certain characteristics or attributes of God that are reflected by us. We call those communicable attributes. Incommunicable are attributes or characteristics that are exclusive to God Himself and only God Himself. And so we think perhaps of the infinity of God, that He is above time, beyond time, outside of time. Or we think of the omnipresence of God, that He is present in the entirety of His being, absolutely everywhere. We, in contrast, as human beings, are not infinite, but are finite. We are bound uh, to one space, one location. When we talk about the attributes of God, and when we come to consider the attributes of God, there there must be a balance because God reveals a variety of His attributes. And the great danger, and this happens over and over and over again, is that a church or a Christian becomes imbalanced in their emphasis upon the attributes of God. And perhaps one overemphasizes the justice of God, or the the wrath of God, or the anger of God against sin. Or perhaps the overemphasis is put on the love of God, and it's not properly understood or, or properly qualified. So we must in our theology, yes, go to the Scriptures, but to all of the Scriptures, and, and have a robust understanding of who God is. Having said that, we look at this particular text this morning and notice that the attribute that is emphasized is what we would just simply call the mercy of God. And notice that God is a God 
who delights in mercy. Notice that in the verse 18 at the end. He does not retain his anger forever. Now there's the acknowledgement of the attribute of God's anger against sinners who sin. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And, and, and what is mercy? Mercy is a soft-heartedness. Synonyms for has to be a compassion. God has a compassionate soft-heartedness that moves him to action. So Micah says, I have confidence that my God will pardon iniquity because I know who he is and I know what he's like. And I know, yes, his anger lasts for a moment, but I know that he delights in mercy. And how does Micah know this? Because Micah has studied the self-revelation of God. And this challenges all of us when we think of God. What do we think? And when we think of God, especially in relationship to the reality of our own sinfulness, do we have confidence saying, yes, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of the glory of God. But I also know that his anger does not last forever because he delights in mercy. He rejoices to have compassion upon us. He looks upon us as sheep who have gone astray. And now perhaps the analogy of shepherding isn't quite as relevant to us today. In the sense of when it comes to animal husbandry, I know that there are a great number of us who are involved in animal husbandry. But I don't think of anybody, at least I don't know of anybody in the congregation who's actively involved in the raising of sheep in animal husbandry, being a shepherd in that context. I know that there are many who raise livestock in the sense of cattle and hogs. But sheep go astray. They wander and they're prone to get themselves into all sorts of trouble when they wander. Shepherds, good shepherds, don't just sit back and go, look at those sheep. Can't believe they're doing that again. But a good shepherd has mercy. It's, it's woven into their very job description. In order to be a good shepherd, you have to have a compassionate heart for those who go astray. Micah knows that that is what God is. And that's also why we read as our call to worship Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7. You want a reason on Sunday morning to wake up and to come into the congregation with joy. Just remind yourself that we are the sheep who belong to the Good Shepherd. And that He has mercy upon us. Now all sorts of perhaps factors come into our theological development of how we perceive God to be. But this morning, I challenge myself and I challenge each and every one of you, bring your conception of God's nature in line with our text. 
This is who God is. He delights in mercy. And in his mercy, he forgives the transgressions of the remnant. I so often think of the parable that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us. We often refer to it as the prodigal son, and there's so much in that parable. It's not just about the prodigal son. The prodigal son, as we call him, he had many things against him. He was like a sheep gone astray. Wasted his inheritance and perhaps this is King James language, with, with riotous living, just wasted it all. In a type of living that would have made his parents embarrassed and perhaps ashamed. And then he came to his senses as he's wallowing in the pig mire. And what does he say? I will go to my father's house. And if these words ever find the ear of anyone who's living a life similar to the prodigal son, I would encourage you, I would call upon you to come to your senses and to say, I will go to my father's house. Know that he delights in mercy. Return in the way of repentance and faith. And in a certain sense, the Christian life does this over and over and over. Think about the week gone past. Was there a day in which you didn't have to exercise repentance? Was there a day in which when the evening came, you didn't have to say, Father, I've sinned but I know that you delight in mercy. And you perhaps know well how that parable ends. As the prodigal, now returning son comes, where is the father? The implication from the text is that the father was in the road looking for the son. It's a picture of God the Father delighting in mercy. And he doesn't, he doesn't make the Son walk a walk of shame. But because he delights in mercy, he greets him with eager expectation and anticipation. And so the Heavenly Father delights in mercy. This is who he is. This is why Micah can have confidence. And behind this is what we consider in our third point, a confidence in the promise of God. Now, hopefully you can see how all of these three are really woven together. The action of God, the nature of God, and the promise of God. The promise of God is simply this, that God being who He is, promises to do what He will do. And you'll notice the promise there, we're alluding to what is in verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God swore to the fathers, to the covenantal fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And his covenant promise in its very essence is this, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
based, yes, of course, upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, based upon the mediator of the covenant, based upon his substitutionary sacrifice that was symbolized all throughout the Old Testament with the altars and with the animals upon the altars and with uh, the flow of blood and, and with the mercy seat and with the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. All of this pointed to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was this promise. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now in order to accomplish that, God has to then forgive the sins of his people. But see, this is the bedrock of promise that gives Micah confidence even in the darkest of times. And you can think of some pretty dark times, and I know that some of you walk through pretty dark times. But even in the darkest of times, when it would seem that the news is only negative, only dark, only discouraging, only depressing, is there any news, is there any event, is there any circumstance that can ever nullify this promise? For God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Is there anything that can develop on the global scene that can nullify that promise? Is there anything that can develop on the domestic scene? Now, there are events that can bring great heartache. The breakup of a marriage, the disappointment of one's hopes and dreams. Uh, the, the continual chaos that can be a result uh, of such things. But can those nullify this promise? And the answer, of course, is no. You can think of it this way. Is there anything uh, that could take away the promise symbolized to us in our baptism? Is there, is there anything, if we can speak of this language, that can undo our baptism? where God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people? And the answer is no. Unless you want to include in that unbelief. Unbelief, it doesn't nullify the promise. But unbelief rejects the promise. So the promise stands based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And I know what it is to struggle when you turn on the news. And when you hear the reports. And when you face the, the trials of life. And when you look at the state of the church broadly considered. And you want to throw up your hands in despair, but... How impressive, if I may say it that way. Uh, in verse 8, Micah has this confidence, not in himself, but in his God. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. And the confident Christian and the confident Christian church can say this. As the world continues to spiral into the decay of sin, and as the culture comes and attacks the Christian faith and seems to make great inroads, the Christian church with a humble confidence can say, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. 
When I fall, I will arise. Now, I'm not advocating for the sport of boxing, but I've heard it said, in boxing, it's not so much how many times you fall down, but how many times you get back up. When I fall, I will arise. This is the statement of the Christian church in its militant form. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Because of who he is, because of what he does, and because of what he has promised. And so let us then go forth as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ into our tomorrows, echoing within our hearts and saying to one another, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice that you are such a God as you are. Uh, we thank you that you are not uh, some fickle God who changes your mind and your attitude one day to the next. We thank you that you are not a far-off and distant deity, unmoved by our difficulties and struggles, our sins and our weaknesses. No, Lord, we rejoice that you are just as you are, a God whose, yes, anger is stirred by sin, but a God who delights in mercy. And we thank you that in your mercy you have provided a refuge in Jesus Christ for all of us who call upon you in truth, who exercise repentance and faith. And as we face the darkness of our own depravity, and as we face the darkness of a sinful society, may we do so with a humble confidence, knowing who our God is and what you have promised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.